My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, my name is Dr. Carolyn Bassolelli, and I'm a first-year resident at Northwell Forest Hills, and you are listening to Do or Do Not. On this week's episode of Do or Do Not, we interview Dr. Renee Darko, who in her own words wears a lot of different hats. We interviewed Nee Darko a few months ago, but Dr. Renee's story is so amazing that she clearly deserves her own episode. Today, Dr. Darko shares with us her inspiring journey to become an obstetric and gynecology physician. Dr. Darko attended Pace University and Hunter College for her pre-med requirements and then graduated from Kansas City College of Osteopathic Medicine. She obtained an MBA simultaneously with her DO at Rockhurst University. Dr. Darko did her residency at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and subsequently completed a fellowship in health policy leadership at Monroe School of Medicine. Dr. Renee is a mother of two children and works as a freelance OBGYN. She hosts a podcast with her husband called Docs Outside the Box and created MedEc, a pre-med app designed to coach underrepresented pre-med students. Dr. Darko is also an author of her own children's book. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. All right, Renee, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Ian, for inviting me. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I just want to say that sometimes on, on Docs Outside the Box, uh, Nee gives you a hard time for doing things like scatting. Like, I like it. So You know, I mean, what's wrong with a scooty bop? You know, like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, so for whatever it's worth, when you, when you go on this show, if he gives you a hard time, just be like, Storch likes my scatting. That's right. So, That's right. Nobody else likes it, Ian likes it. <laughs> All right, Renee. So can you just start, like, I, I know, I, again, I told you before we started recording that I, I listened to Docs Outside the Box, so I know a little bit about what you do, but it sounds like you have some days that are more like home days, mom days, and then mm-hmm. some days that are like doctor, OB, working days, right? So can you tell us about both of those days? Maybe tell us about what one mom day looks like starting from the morning when you wake up and going through your day, and then what one doctor day looks like. Sure, absolutely. So I kind of call myself a, a stay-at-home OBGYN. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny because I never thought that my career in my home life would look the way that it does now. But um, so I stay home most days of the month, and I only work usually about three days a month, sometimes six days a month, usually on a weekend. So a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And so on a typical Monday through Friday, what my day looks like is I get up, get my, you know, kids ready for school, get their school lunches ready, get their faces washed, their teeth brushed, painstakingly get their teeth brushed because they're three and five. Um, And then walk them off to school, walk my oldest actually off to school and then drive my youngest to school. And then I come home and I'm working on the podcast and the other businesses that we have. And I do that usually between the hours of 10 and two o'clock. 
Um, and then I'm back at it again for school pickup, pick them up, you know, and start all over again with them being home, um, taking them to swim class or any other activities that they might have after school, doing some activities with them or just letting them watch TV because I need a break. Um, so I know all the pediatricians out there are probably like, you're not supposed to do that. Well, I'm doing that. So I need a break. Um, so that's what my typical Monday through Friday looks like. Whereas when I'm at work, when I'm Dr. Renee, then what that looks like is me going from a Friday all the way working until a Monday morning. So I will work sometimes 72 hours, but sometimes that, that Friday is like really a half day, depending on what the need is. Um, so I work locums, which basically means that I'm a place filler or placeholder for a doctor who, you know, is unavailable, um, at that time that I'm working. And so I am a OB hospitalist. So I deliver babies most of the time, do general or excuse me, do GYN surgery. Um, usually on an emergent basis, or I see patients kind of in the ER as well who might come in and have something kind of urgent that they need to, to get taken care of. And so that looks like, that looks like a number of things. That looks like lack of sleep most of the time. <laughs> that looks like going to the OR and delivering a baby and then running down to the ER and then, you know, coming back to the general operating room and then doing a, a surgery there. I mean, it looks like a lot of things, um, but I enjoy it very, very much. And it's, it's funny because for me going into the hospital, it's kind of, it's kind of refreshing because it's very different than what I'm doing at home. And I feel like I'm actually fresh, right? I've, I've done kind of the, the full gamut OBGYN being in the office and being on call and doing all of that. I've done that in the past. Um, but being on call as a OB hospitalist, the way that I'm on call only three days a month really helps me to feel like I'm fresh and that I can handle that weekend because I'm not going to do it again for another month. So I don't have to worry about, oh my God, I got to go into the office the next day and da, 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 whatever. So, um, yeah, that's what life looks like right about now. See, I would, that's totally different. I would think than. Most OBGYNs, do you mm -hmm. think that what you do is sort of special and different, right? And you balance your your home life and your work life by doing that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I mean, it again, it's not what I thought my career was going to look like. Uh, I was just saying to someone the other day that my career, I thought, was going to be dedicated to women's health, which it is. I, you know, I obviously do women's health, but I realized that I kind of niched myself in doing locums. And my niche is really in helping my colleagues when they need a break. And so that's, you know, a, I'm, I'm a doctor to other doctors in that sense, if that makes right. any sense at all, right? Totally that right. when they need that break, I show up. So, um, yeah. So here's, here's like a, a basic question on this. So I decided that I did not want to do GYN when I saw a shoulder dystocia and I got totally freaked out. So for those listening, shoulder dystocia is like the baby gets stuck with like their shoulder wedged and you can't get it out. And sometimes you have to like break the clavicle with your finger. Right. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is what's more stressful that or the kids having a meltdown at home? <laughs> <laughs> 
So I will tell you that any shoulder dystocia that I've ever had has been way easier than dealing with meltdown. These shoulder dystocias, I mean, you know, they, they cause stress, but usually, usually you can get that baby out in about a minute if you need to, right? Like that's usually how it works. A meltdown can go on for an entire day, depending on how each child is feeling, right? So I have two boys, three and five. And so that, that can look, that can look different on any given day. And they can melt down about things that you, you wouldn't think that they would melt down about. It's like, you want a fruit snack? We're out of fruit snacks. (laughs) I'm like, we don't have any fruit snacks. I don't know what to tell you, you know? And so that lasts a very long time. So yeah. Um, not that I wish shoulder dystocias on anyone. I don't, but um, Less stressful. yeah, <laughs> I take that any day. <laughs> All right, Renee. All right, Renee. I appreciate that. So can you tell us a little bit? We, we had me, as you know, on, on the podcast a while back. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you do specifically? Um, talking I, I know you have a children's book. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. That looked really cool. And then can you tell us a little bit about your podcast, your personal podcast, and and pre-medical strategies, which is a company that you have to help pre-medical students? Yeah. So I wear quite a number of hats. Um, you mentioned Docs Outside the Box, which, you know, I'm a co-host with my husband. Um, but on my own, I do have pre-med strategies and Pre-Med Strategies was kind of born out of just, you know, 20 years of working with pre-med students. I've been working with pre-med students since I was like a first-year medical student. Um, And so it, you know, it really just came out of the fact that a lot of people would gravitate towards me because of whatever reason, whatever vibe I was putting out there, but I would offer to do, you know, to look at people's personal statements, help them with their interviews, help them with their strategy of applying to medical school, hence pre-med strategies. And so that started in about, I want to say 2000, it really started about 2014, but I didn't really get going until about 2017. And um, it's morphed, you know, in the way that I work within pre-med strategies. But right now we have a, a signature program called MEDEC which MEDEC stands for Medical Education Equity, and it's an app-based program. So I created an app where underrepresented students can literally come onto the app and interface with med- medical school recruiters, um, medical school diversity officers, um, and I'm looking to incorporate some medical students onto there as well. But um, what I was finding was that my own story of you know, being a young black woman going into uh, the the pre med realm, um, going to college and becoming overwhelmed, and then I was told in my first year of college that I should, you know, go to graduate school and do something else. Well, thankfully I didn't do that, but unfortunately that story has reverberated over and over and over again with so many of the pre meds that I've met, many of them being underrepresented, and then we wonder why there is a diversity issue in medicine, but <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of factors, but that doesn't help. Um, and so I created Medic specifically for that reason, 
because sometimes, you know, the middleman doesn't necessarily give you the answer that you need or that you're looking for. And so going straight to the source, being the medical school recruiters or the diversity officers at medical schools does help to give those students a different perspective on how they should be approaching their own journeys to medicine. So that's pre-med strategies. Um, and again, our signature program is Medic. And then you mentioned my children's book. Right. Yeah. So That's cool, That's cool too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> so what's really funny is that I never wanted to be an OBGYN. That was not my intention when I went into medical school. I was going to be a diehard pediatrician. That's what I was going to be. And I quickly got into my pediatric rotation and I hated it. I absolutely, I just found it boring. I was like, this medicine is boring. I just, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I'm, I'm seeing patients and then I'm writing notes and then I'm ordering. Um, no offense to, you know, to pediatricians. Oh, no. Everybody you loves know. something different, right? Yeah. Yep. But to me, it just was not, it, that wasn't my bag, basically. And so I, I ended up falling in love with OB, but um, I still always have a love for children. Um, I used to teach high school um, before I went into medical school. And so I wanted to write a book about kind of my own journey. Um, and I wanted it to resonate to children who were younger. But most importantly, I wanted it to resonate to the parents. And I said, well, how can I write a book for parents? Because parents typically aren't looking for those types of books. But being a parent myself, I know I read a book every night, sometimes two and three, depending on how persistent, you know, somebody is for asking, you know, that they want another story. And so I said, I know what I'll do. I'll write a children's book because parents read children's books. And so that's what I ended up doing. I wrote a children's book that is loosely based on my life. Um, in the book, I end up being a pediatrician and not an OBGYN. Um, but yeah, it's loosely based on my life. And, um, yeah, it was a great experience writing the book and, you know, looking at the illustrations and getting everything done. But yeah, it's available on Amazon if anybody wants it. It's called How Good Old Dr. V Came to Be. Yeah, I already ordered my copy, so oh, I haven't read awesome. it yet. Yeah, yeah, I haven't read it yet, but it's coming. It's coming tomorrow. Yeah, um, awesome. Just ask you one more question, Renee, to go to go back to the pre med strategies, just so so I could understand, and maybe our listeners could understand. So let's say there is an underrepresented student listening to our podcast and listening to us talk, and and that person says, "Wow, Renee seems awesome." And, and I really could use some help getting into med school and they go on the website, like what's the process and, and what does the service offer to those students? Yeah, absolutely. So to join the medic program is absolutely free. So what we offer is you get onto the platform, you go ahead, you complete your profile. Once you complete your profile, then you have access to the recruiters that we have on the app. Um, but it's not just an app. So I, I keep calling it a program because it really is a program. We offer, you know, different, different types of workshops. So yesterday, actually, we had a medical school info session uh, for one of the schools that is on the app. And so we had the recruiters and some medical students on a panel, on a virtual panel. And then we had pre-med students who were able to literally come up and ask their questions um, live. So, you know, we have things like that. One of our 
biggest programs is actually our Mock and Rock, what we what I call Mock and Rock your medical school interviews. So you come and you mock it with us and then you rock it on your real interviews. And that's a really, really popular one. We run that usually between two, between two and four days. Um, but we have medical students, faculty members, recruiters, diversity officers, physicians, residents. Um, they all come on and volunteer their time. And each student actually rotates such that they each get three mock interviews by the time they're done with the program. And so we've gotten a lot of great, great, great responses and feedback for that program. And um, the the students that actually get into medical school from the medic program, they really credit um, their preparation for for their interviews to that particular program because many of them just don't have someone who will be able to mock interview. They just don't know who to go to. Um, so that is a really big benefit of the program. Um, we've had a summit in the past um, called the Pre-Med to Prepared Summit. And we had a number of, again, workshops and webinars for students. And we also have a free MCAT course that we run usually about twice a year. We just ended um, an eight-week run on Sunday, this this past Sunday, Um, But that course is very specifically tailored towards teaching strategies such that they become skills. So it's actually called the strategy-based skill-building MCAT course. And so we do a little bit of content, but we realize that a lot of students are doing a lot of content. And content usually is not, you know, where they they falter. Usually it's going to be in their test-taking strategies and the skill of being able to take the test so we really drill in those strategies uh, until they become skills that is kind of like second nature, almost like me doing an emergency C-section, right? <laughs> so I've done it so many times that now if you put a baby you know, in danger in front of me, I can get that baby out in one minute because I've just done it and drilled it so much. And so I liken that a lot you know, to the students being able to take the MCAT and using those strategies to help their scores um, go beyond what, what they could have ever imagined. So, sounds cool. Yeah, it's, it all sounds great, and it all sounds like everybody listening should check out the website and yeah, see if thank it's, you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because I think you forget. You know, I think like for for me at least, you forget how stressful and difficult it is to, like you said, go on your first interview when you know you get on in your career. You've been in a million interviews, and it's not really a big deal. But mm-hmm. when you're starting off, you don't know what to say, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to dress. Right. To make make a good impression and make sure that 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 person realizes that they want you. Right. Absolutely. And especially for underrepresented students, you know, sometimes, you know, their their worlds are, you know, much, much um, different than what the expectation is in medicine. Um, And so, you know, we kind of help to bridge that gap a little bit to say, you know, just because your worlds are different doesn't necessarily mean that you don't belong in this world. You belong here as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a great experience. And I I learn every single year from the students, every encounter. Um, and they're, they're just a great group. And I guess like for just to, again, give me a better picture and give the listeners a better picture, like for the mock interviews. So they're doing the interview, but I assume you're also giving them feedback on, you know, maybe what they said that was really great or what they could have said to answer the question a little better in their own way. Is that right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the way that we do it is that we time, we give them a certain amount of time to be able to do the interview and then get feedback from each of their interviewers. And sometimes they'll have two interviewers at a time, right? Because it's med school and sometimes you have two interviewers at a time. Um, so, you know, we give, we also like give kind of the, the types of questions that you might get on an interview so that it's, it's almost a little bit more standardized. Um, so everybody is kind of understanding what questions, um, that they're going to get. And, you know, they're able to kind of, um, I guess, you know, trade notes, if you will. So that they say, Oh, what, you know, what did you say for this particular question? And they can, you know, talk back and forth amongst themselves after the, after the event is over. But yes, everyone is able to get that feedback in real time. And sometimes, you know, if, if an interviewer truly feels like, Hmm, this student really, really needed some help, you know, needed a little bit of extra help. They'll reach out to me and say, Hey, listen, I interviewed such and such a student and, you know, here was the issue. He or she didn't necessarily perform as well as I thought. And then I will reach out to that student myself and say, okay, let's sit down and work on, you know, whatever it is the issue was. And so we'll sit down and we'll work on it. And sometimes I'll get some of my friends to, you know, some of my doctor friends to interview that person again. And I say, I need you to interview this person. And we'll start the cycle all over again with that, with that person on their own kind of personal track. Um, so, you know, I really try to um, tailor things to the student's needs. And, you know, if a student is needing a little bit of extra help, if I can provide that, then I do. It sounds great. Yeah, it sounds really great. Uh, Renee, I want to talk a little bit about you now. Um, can you tell us where you grew up? And I know, again, that, you know, I've listened to a lot of your uh, podcast in the past. So, I know your parents are, are not from the United States. Can you tell us a little bit about your parents, about where you grew up, and when you decided you want to be a doctor? Absolutely. So, <laughs> so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And if you know anything about Brooklyn, New York, there's nothing beyond Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> there's one big wall. If you go beyond that wall, you're going to fall off. <laughs> so basically, I'm a Brooklyn girl. And... um my parents actually uh, came to the United States in the 70s, in the early 70s. Um, my parents are from Haiti originally. And one thing that a lot of people don't know about me is that my parents actually did go to medical school. And they went to medical school in Spain. They were in their mid-20s when they went to medical school in Spain. Um, unfortunately, they weren't able to finish because of financial circumstances, particularly on my mother's side. Her um, stepfather had had actually passed and he was the source of income for the family. And so he was the one that was funding her to go to medical school. And so unfortunately, she had to leave. Um, she came to the United States first. Um, by then, they had, had already had uh, my brother and my sister. My brother and my sister then went from Spain to Haiti to go live with my grandparents so that my father could finish medical school. Well, my father, then realizing that his family was all over the world, said that is not acceptable and decided to leave medical school against his father's advice um, and joined my mother in the United States. And until they could get themselves on their feet by their own house, then they brought my brother and my sister to the United States. 
And by then I was already born. I was about three years old um, when my brother and my sister came to join us in the United States. Um, but around, maybe around that time, I'm not quite sure, but I remember a, I remember very vaguely having a conversation um, with my dad. I might have been six. I don't know how old I was, but I, I vaguely remember a conversation with my dad. And, you know, I said to him, I want to be a nurse. And he said, okay. He said, well, why not a doctor? And I said, dad, girls can't be doctors. <laughs> like, you know, didn't he know? Didn't he get the memo? And he said, absolutely, girls can be doctors. And he might have, he might at that time have told me that my mother was in medical school and that he was in medical school. I don't remember. Um, but when he told me that girls could be doctors, I said, okay, then I want to be a doctor. Now, that is like three or five or six-year-old Renee. Um, but when I really, really, really decided I wanted to be a doctor, um, I think was at the point at which I was in college and I was essentially told by my pre-med advisor that I should do something else. And I had to have a real heart-to-heart -heart with myself. Like, do I really want to do this or not? Um, and I decided that that was what I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I often tell students that, one, if that's what you want to do, don't be discouraged. You know, if, if, if a door closes in front of you, find another door that is ajar, even, even if it's just slightly open, just find another door. Um, but I also tell students, if you think you know, if you, if you think you'll be good at something, even if you're not that thing yet, if you think you'll be good at something, you're probably going to be very passionate about it. And so when we think about why we want to become doctors, I, I tell students all the time, don't just think about why you want to be a doctor, but think about why you would be a great doctor, you know, and figure out what the characteristics are about you that will make you a good doctor. Um, because that that will tell you, I, yeah, I think I'm going to be good at this, you know. So, yeah, you can be compassionate. You can be empathetic. You can be all of those things. But those are the things. Those are the characteristics that let you know, yeah, I think I, I would be really, really good at this. And so I think you start there with the why you want to be a doctor. I think you have to know that that's something that you think you would be really good at. Plus the other perks of taking care of people, meeting new people, learning new things. Um, you know, learning the human body. Um, but yeah, I think that it was at that point, it was at that critical point that I said, I think I would be good at this and I don't want to go and do a master's and do something else because that's not what I want to do. So. So what did you do then, Renee? So, so this person told you, and I think a lot of us have had, have had a similar experience and it's definitely i i get like chills thinking about like my similar experiences but obviously that didn't resonate with you this this person telling you that you shouldn't be a doctor and you decided you're going to do it how did you go forward from that point well i will tell you that day i went back to my dorm room called my parents from a payphone and your your audience probably was like what's a payphone but <laughs> called them from a payphone and cried and bawled my eyes out. I had no clue what to do. I was 18 years old. I had no clue what to do. Um, but my parents told me just to, you know, don't listen to her, keep going. The problem was that they didn't know what to do either. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they had gone to school in Spain years ago, but they didn't know the system in the United States of how to get into medical school. And so I flailed around for quite a number of years, probably about another two and a half years. I was a chemistry major. I avoided chemistry classes like the plague. Um, and after a while, I found myself in a physics class, um, which I promptly got a D in. But <laughs> I found myself, in, well, that's better than the F I got in chemistry. So um, but <laughs> I found myself in a physics class with a young lady who was a little bit older than I was. And she was taking courses. I don't know if she was doing post-bac or whatever, but she introduced me to the MSAR. Now, mind you, this was my third year of college. I had no clue what the MSAR was, you know, the medical school admissions requirements. I had no clue what the requirements were for medical school. I had never been sat down and told this is what you need. And so when she gave me the book, at that time, it was like a, a little thin booklet, And I went back to my dorm room and read it and bawled on the floor because I realized I wasn't anywhere near even just getting to medical school because many of the prerequisites I hadn't even touched yet. I hadn't done organic. I hadn't done any of that. And I was, I was not doing well in physics. Um, and it wasn't until a friend of mine said, Hey, why don't you talk to whatever administrator was, was on campus who was very good with the students. She was, um, she was just someone who was very personable. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go and talk with her. So I sat down with her and just told her my entire story. I was like, I failed chemistry, not doing well. My GPA is okay, but here's, you know, here's the lay of the land. And I didn't hold back on anything. And she sat me down we talked about changing my major. We talked about changing it to a BA versus a BS in biology because I had taken a bunch of biology classes. Um, I decided on the BS, but that would mean that I would stay in college an extra year, um, just kind of based on the classes that I took. And so I decided to stay in college that extra year. And then she told me about postback um, because we knew that my GPA wasn't going to be that great. And so she said, listen, you can graduate from college. And then maybe take some extra courses when you're done. They call that a post-bac. And so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up doing um, a couple of post-bac years total between finishing college after that fifth year and getting into medical school was about a four-year stint. So I had four gap years in between um, starting medical school when I was 27 years old, um, which, you know, it, it was a great it was a great four years. I got to teach high school. I got to work in a food lab. I had a lot of different experiences that I think had I not had those experiences, I don't know that I would have appreciated um, just my my medical education as much. So Renee, just to get a, a fill in a couple of the details, where did you go to college? And then where did you do your post-bac work? Yeah. So I went to college at Pace University out in Pleasantville, New York. And then I did my post-bac at Hunter College in New York City. Okay, so then uh, my next question is, when did you find out about osteopathic school? And when did you meet me? Right? And then and then tell us a little bit about a Brooklyn girl going to uh, Kansas City. Oh, right? absolutely. The decision, right? Yeah. The Brooklyn girl who, you know, she fell off. <laughs> she <laughs> fell off the face of the earth when she left Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So 
Wait, what was your first question? Let me go oh, back. First, yeah, first. So the first question is, tell me about when you found out about osteopathic school and your yes. application process. Start with that. Right. So I I met a young lady uh, while I was studying for the MCAT. Um, and she, she was studying for the MCAT as well. She's the one that told me about osteopathic medicine. I had no clue. This was during my gap year. And I believe it was maybe the first or second summer of my gap year, um, or my gap time. And I had no clue what it was, but I also didn't turn away from it because I was like, well, I've never heard of it before. So, you know, I I don't want to dismiss it and potentially lose out on an opportunity. So I started really looking things up. I started going to open houses and just started learning more and more about osteopathic medicine and realized the philosophy was something that really just interested me. And I said, well, for me, this philosophy makes sense. Like, why wouldn't it be just medicine. Like, why is this like osteopathic medicine? But it is what it is, right? And so that's the osteopathic philosophy. And so it really resonated with me. And I went to an SNMA conference, a Student National Medical Association. And there is where I met my mentor, uh, Dale Sanders. And he was, um, I think he was maybe a resident at the time, but he was doing a workshop. And I decided to go to that workshop on osteopathic medicine. And that's where I met him. And he really helped me to understand even more about just the the process of going to an, an osteopathic school and being an osteopathic physician. Well, he went to school in Kansas City and um, was trying to convince this Brooklyn girl to apply to school in Kansas City. And I said, and verbatim, I said to him, I am not riding a cow to school. Like that is not happening. And so he goes, you don't even know what you're talking about. There's like cows running around Kansas City. I'm like, I don't know about that. Um, but what I didn't know at the time was that at the same time that I was applying, there was a young man who was also applying. And this young man lived in New Jersey. And he applied to medical school in Kansas City. And when he got to Kansas City, He knew no one. He didn't know Dr. Sanders. He didn't know anyone there. But when he got there, there was a group of um, students who are Student National Medical Association chapter at Kansas City who saw him and said, why is it that you're here and we don't know? Um, Because apparently they had had kind of this uh, relationship with the admissions office that whenever there was an African-American student coming to campus, that they would kind of be the welcome committee, show them around and things like that. And so they took him under their wing and put him together with Dr. Sanders. And and so one day I get a call um, and it's a young man saying, hey, my name is Nee and I applied to Kansas City. I got accepted. I heard that you got accepted too. Dr. Sanders told me to call you. And so that's how I met my husband was actually over the phone. Um, he was still in New Jersey at the time. I was still in New York. By that time, we had moved from Brooklyn to Long Island. So I guess there was life outside of Brooklyn. But um, yeah, that's how we met. We actually met over the phone and then finally met in person in Kansas City and went to school together and and finished out our four years there together. So now tell me a little bit about just the experience of, again, a Brooklyn girl, not being cliche, but a Brooklyn girl mm-hmm. living in Kansas City. What was that like? And did you do rotations? Did you come back to New York for your rotations or did you stay around there? 
Well, that was the plan was to come back. So, you know, being again from Brooklyn, from New York and just wanting to go there and come back really quickly to my family, I had in my mind that I would spend only two years in Kansas City. Well, I got to Kansas City and part of the reason that I chose to go to school in Kansas City, because I, I did get a number of acceptances, both MD and DO schools. Um, but I, I chose to go DO. I, I know ACOM would love this. I chose DO. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I did choose to go to DO school because, again, I really just loved the philosophy of osteopathic medicine. And I thought that the school would be a really good fit for me. When I got to Kansas City on my interview, I realized that it wasn't a very urban area and it was very similar. That area was actually very similar to the area that I grew up in in Brooklyn. So I didn't feel it all out of place. If that makes any sense, I just kind of felt like, okay, I could do this. It was, it was smaller than New York, but it was still kind of that city feel. Um, but without all of the distraction of family and all these other things. Um, so, you know, being from Brooklyn and going to Kansas City wasn't as big of a change as I thought that it would be. Um, and so when I got there, I decided as well to then do a dual degree. And my dual degree is a uh, master's in business administration. And at that time, and I still believe to this day, this is what they do, but Kansas City University has a, you know, they, they have a policy where if you're going to do the dual degree that you have to finish in four years. You know, whereas some schools say, now nah, you can take a year off and then you'll finish in five years. But Kansas City University says, nope, we want our students to finish in four years. Well, in order to finish in four years, that means that I had to go to, go to class in Kansas City. Right. Um, so the program was with Rockhurst University. That's where I was getting my MBA. And so I had to attend classes in Kansas City for my third year, which means I had to stay in Kansas City. So I ended up staying in Kansas City. Uh, for my third year. For my fourth year, I slowly made my way back to New York, just kind of traveling through the Midwest and doing rotations um, in Chicago and Akron and Pittsburgh. I just literally slowly made my way back to New York. Um, but, you know, since, since being in the, in medical school, I found that it was a very good way for me to travel and to get out of that comfort zone of being like, I'm from New York, you know, and this is what I know. And I don't want to look, you know, anywhere else. I don't want to be anywhere else. Um, so since, you know, since that time, I've actually lived in Idaho. I've lived in Atlanta. Um, I've done rotations in Hoisington, Kansas, um, all the other places that I mentioned, Chicago, Akron, Pittsburgh. Um, I've lived quite a number of places. I lived in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Um, so it was a great experience for me to get out of my comfort zone and realize that, you know, I, I'm not, I myself am not a monolith, right? Like I have varying degrees of interests and, um, it, it really would be a disservice to myself to not explore those interests. Um, and so that's what I've done kind of with my life so far. I think that's awesome. And I have this discussion with students all the time. I think, doing exactly what you did gives you so much more out of your medical experience because you get to see other places and experience other people, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you learn 
so much about different populations. Let me tell you, the population in East New York, Brooklyn is not the same as Idaho. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same as Blackfoot, Idaho. You know, Blackfoot, Idaho is a place that has, I think, 15,000 people. Um, it has a small, very small hospital, 25 bed hospital. Um, it's just very, very, very different, very nature and, you know, people are out and doing activities and that, that's just not my experience growing up. And so I had a wonderful time. I met wonderful people, still have friends today, um, from Idaho, from my Idaho experience. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. That's awesome. Renee. So how did you decide on OBGYN? What really drew you to OBGYN? And then tell us how you picked your residency and where you ended up doing your training. Yeah. So um, like I said before, I did not want to be an OB. That was literally the last thing I used to say. I used, Oh, my gosh, I was so ignorant. But I used to say, I do psychiatry before I do OB. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with psychiatry, but that's what I used to say. Yeah, it's popular now, yeah. (laughs) So ignorant, so (laughs) ignorant. Um, But as I mentioned, I I got into my pediatric rotation and I just, I didn't enjoy it. And the funny thing is that OB was my last rotation of my third year. And if you know anything about the timeline of medical school, you really needed to pick what you wanted to do (laughs) before that last rotation. And so I go into my last rotation of OBGYN of my third year, literally rolling my eyes because I'm like, I'm not going to like this. I'm going to hate it. I don't want to do this. And I did my first delivery and I was hooked. I was absolutely amazed and hooked. Then we went to the operating room and did a delivery there. And I was even more hooked. Then we went to the office and we did a bunch of procedures. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like I'm never doing the same thing, you know, over and over and over. It's not mundane. It's, you know, there's a lot of versatility in OBGYN that I didn't realize. And so, you know, again, for your, for your listeners out there who are pre-meds or, you know, early in their medical school careers, like don't close your eyes to something because you think you know what it is. You may have no clue what it is. So keep yourself open. Um, and I was, I was very glad to have that experience and not to cut myself off, you know, of OB to the point where, you know, having the experience, I, I would have had a good experience, but I would have talked myself out of it. Um, but I, I did grapple a little bit with that switch. And my fourth year, I ended up doing two more pediatric rotations. Um, and two more OBGYN rotations. And I, I did that because I, again, was so like, but I always said I wanted to be a pediatrician, but I really don't like it. I wanted to make sure that I really, really, really wanted to switch to OB. And so my last pediatric rotation was um, pediatric ER. And I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm <laughs> tapping out. I can't do this. <laughs> and so I, I went to OB. Yeah, Renee, just to echo what you said, I, I, I'm always so much more impressed with the second year student that says that they that they don't know what they want to do than somebody that says they want to do derm, you know, something like yes. that, right? Yes, it's and so I'm, true. Right, the one that says that they don't know what they want to do, I'm like, that's the right answer. That's yeah. excellent. Don't be embarrassed. That's, that's the right answer. Right, right. Because there is this notion that apparently, 
you know, you should know what you want to be before you go into medical school. And I'm like, that is absolutely the wrong answer because you haven't been exposed. So how would you know? So, yeah. All right, Renee. So how did, how did you, how'd you pick your residency? You know, what drew you to residency and uh, tell us where you went. And also we, we touched on this a little bit with knee and I know I keep asking very long questions, but yeah, I, we touched on it with knee when we interviewed knee. Um, and the man perspective is sometimes a little different than the woman perspective, of course. So tell us, yeah, wh- why you didn't uh, couples match? Like what made you decide to do a separate match? Yeah, and how that yeah, went. that's been a big discussion on the podcast, actually. We just we just recorded one today, which, um, yeah, it's 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 going to be a hot one. But um, <laughs> man, right. Just yeah. give us a little teaser. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Nia and I were dating in medical school. We started dating actually uh, the second semester of our first year. I don't know what he told you, but he kissed me first. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said he kissed you first. I think that's yeah. it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, we yeah, we started dating, but we weren't really we weren't really as serious, um, you know, to the point where we felt like we needed the couples match. It is a conversation that we had. And that's kind of the teaser of the podcast episode that we have coming up. Um, we did actually have a discussion, but it was more so after the match process was going on. And, you know, I just was like, huh, I wonder if it would have been a good idea to couples match. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't really something that I had looked into, but I, I did wonder. And, um, I ended up choosing my resident or choosing the places where I would do residency just kind of by, you know, where I thought I would like to live. Um, So I chose, um, I think Chicago was, was one city, um, New Jersey, New York. um, And I forget where else I might've chosen um, a couple of programs in Atlanta as well. Just some places that I thought, you know, if I'm going to live somewhere and not be necessarily in school, um, but like working and things like that, I'd like to know kind of what it's like uh, to live in a city um, that it, maybe I've never lived in before. But I also did give myself an option to be closer to home and back with my family because I had been away for so long. I ended up doing my residency. Um, I matched at... Uh, well, now it's called Rutgers University, but at the time it was called um, the University of Medi- Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, UMDNJ, um, at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. And so that's where I ended up doing my ger- my residency. It was in New Brunswick, New York, or New Brunswick, New Jersey, mm-hmm. um, close to New York, about maybe an hour and a half away from my parents. So I was actually able to see my parents um, very frequently, much more frequently, obviously, than in medical school. So that that made a huge difference for me. Um, me, on the other hand, went out to Atlanta. And so, you know, that became an issue because now we had a long distance relationship. And our long distance relationship had actually started really in the fourth year of medical school because we started doing away rotations and we weren't doing away rotations in the same cities. You know, there was a point he was in Michigan and I was in Akron. And, you know, so we we were kind of long distance for um, at least a year, year and a half before residency. And so being long distance for residency definitely exacerbated, you know, 
issues that we already had in the relationship. Um, you know, the, the maturity factor, obviously the stress factor of, of residency and just having to perform and be good and, you know, not break down. Um, and he was in a program where they had categoricals and prelims. He came in as a categorical, which basically is kind of like, that's your permanent spot. Whereas prelims, you know, that that's not necessarily your permanent spot. You you might get a permanent spot if you do really well. Um, but that program was also one where you could lose your categorical spot and then become a prelim if you didn't wow. perform. So he had a lot of extra pressure on him that I didn't have because my program was not necessarily a prelim categorical. It was just once you get into the program, you're just in the program. Um, and not that you didn't have to perform and that you couldn't be dismissed. You could, but we didn't have that extra pressure of, well, are you going to continue as a categorical versus a prelim? And I remember that first year was extremely, extremely tenuous for us um, because of the pressure that he had, um, but also because I had a really hard time adjusting to residency. Um, you know, my residency program, at I, I will say this candidly, I felt that it it was at times malignant um, and wasn't very conducive to the learning process. Um, I felt like there were times that I was being hazed, um, times that I literally was not allowed to go to the bathroom or eat, um, you know, things like that. And that, you know, that going through that by yourself is already an issue, but then having someone who's going through a very similar stressful experience and then having a long distance relationship doesn't make for a very good relationship. So we didn't have a lot of nights on the phone where we would, you know, say, I love you and good night <laughs> to say yeah. the least. Yeah. I think just, just to your point, you know, and getting back to what we said before, I think people see, you know, surgeons and OBs at the end of the path saying, wow, that's great. They have such a nice life and, you know, they have a nice earning potential and a nice job, but, but it, it's really, you know, and again, forgetting about the fact that you're in a malignant program, like that's horrible, but like just in general, it's hard, right? Like it, any general OB program, it's high stress, it, you know, any surgical specialty OB and general surgery, which you're both in are, are very stressful things to go through. And then you got two people in the same relationship doing similar stressful things. That's, uh, that's yeah, gotta it was be very tough. hard. It was very and you hard. See each other. Yeah. So, and you know, and I, I, I definitely, um, you know, went through it in that first year, I actually quit my residency. I put in my resignation, mm -hmm. um, and I was talked out of it by the chair of my department who I had so much respect for and still do. Um, he's, you know, just, a, a very, he's just someone that I, I very highly respect. And so I decided I would stay in the program. And thankfully, it got a lot better for me. You know, it got a lot better for me. Um, I think kind of um, this, it, you know, sometimes they say it's it's not necessarily where you are, it's the people who you work with. Right. And I think that there was that group of seniors who just, they just needed to go away for me to be able to do what I needed to do um, and not have at least that level of stress. So my situation did improve. Um, I think Nee's situation um, in terms of feeling like he wasn't going to be a categorical or, you know, was he going to be a prelim, that improved. 
But then there were other stressors, you know, like um, I think they had um, they were short a person in the program and he ended up having to do what the second year does in his third year. And, you know, that ended up putting a lot of pressure on him because he ended up being in the ICU every other day. Um, and so if you if you know anything about the ICU, I run from the ICU whenever I have to go there. I'm like, OK, thank you. Bye. <laughs> so I can't imagine being in the ICU every other day and having to take care of patients. So that was very stressful. And I would try to go out and visit him. We would have four weeks of vacation um, during my residency. And so I would almost every quarter take three or four days and go out to visit him. And that was, you know, those visits weren't always very happy visits. Um, <laughs> there were a couple of visits where, you know, we ended up going to see a therapist. <laughs> but, you know, thankfully, <laughs> we were able to. I don't know how we made it through. I'm telling you, That's I have no crazy. clue how we made it through. But here we are. You know, we're 20 years in. <laughs> it, worked. It, so, it worked out OK, right? Yeah, it worked out OK. We're, we, it definitely worked out OK. And we definitely don't have the level of stress that we had back then. And our relationship is way different than what it was. Now, my last, you know, I, I, I did my GI training at Jackson. So, you know, I, I bonded with Nee about Miami when, when he went to, how come he didn't come to New Jersey? Was, was he thinking about New Jersey or just, I mean, I was very happy in Miami, but were you like, why aren't you coming back here? Or were you just like, wow, great. I'll visit you in Miami. Or was it just do whatever you need to do for your career? Well, at that point in time, we actually were not together. So I actually, so OBGYN residency is four years and surgery is five years. So in, so we had kind of like a year um, where yeah. I was done and he wasn't. And so I graduated in 2010. I ended up actually moving to Atlanta where he was, um, not because of him, actually. It just so happened that I got accepted into a health policy program, a health policy fellowship. And I was always very interested in health policy. Actually, my last year of medical school, I spent the last two months of medical school out in Washington, D.C., doing a health policy uh, rotation. And so I wanted to kind of continue on that vein because I thought I thought my career was going to go a totally different way. I thought I was going to be in academic medicine, uh, maybe move my way, you know, through government. That's where I was going. So I got an opportunity to work with um, a former U.S. Surgeon General in his program at Atlanta wow. um, at the same program that me was at in, at Morehouse School of Medicine. So I ended up in Atlanta the relationship was still very tenuous at that point in time. And so we ended up parting ways. He ends up going to Miami. Um, and then I ends up moving to Idaho. Wow. Yeah. I ended up moving to Idaho. Um, then he comes crawling back. <laughs> That's, listen, uh, my wife will tell you a similar story. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we ended up actually getting back together. Um, that that year that he was in Miami, maybe kind of like the second half of that year that he was in Miami um, and I was in Idaho. So and we ended up making our way. Um, I ended up making my way back to Atlanta and he started doing locums and traveling. And that was the year that we ended up getting engaged, got married. And the rest is history. That's awesome. That's awesome. 
Great stuff. Again, thank you for sharing it with us. I know uh, some of it, the bumpy stuff, we talked about it earlier. The bumpy stuff is always the hardest part to talk about, but I think it's the thing that that the listeners get the most value out of. It's not always, you know, uh, rainbows and puppies and, and everything nice. It's It's work for anything that's worth doing, right? Absolutely. It really is a lot of work. And, you know, I know people look at me and I now and they're like you said, you know, they're like, oh, you guys are so funny You're yeah. so cute together and things like that. I'm like, you should have known us in the <laughs> right. mid 2000s. You would not be saying that right now. <laughs> so funny. So funny. Renee, again, thank you so much for, for spending all this time with us and telling us your whole story. Uh, can you just tell us, usually our, our grand finale question is, can you give us one piece of advice that you were given from someone else, whether it's your parents, someone in college, in med school, residency, anywhere, that you found valuable that you think our listeners would get value from as well? Yes. And this comes to mind um, because I got a message on Instagram from a young man that I don't know who is the son of my late high school chemistry teacher. And unfortunately, my chemistry teacher passed when this young man was pretty young. And so somehow on the Internet, he found me and he found his father's name. I guess he was Googling his father's name and he was like, how are you guys related? And I said, oh, you know, he was my chemistry teacher in, in high school. And um, he was from Ghana. Um, uh, my chemistry teacher was from Ghana. His name was uh, Dr. Harold Afrié. And he used to say this to us all the time. He would say, you must persevere. And it's, it's a very simple thing, right? You must persevere. But oftentimes I think about Mr. Afrié or Dr. Afrié saying you must persevere because no one is guaranteed to help you walk through your journey. You know, there, there's not necessarily always going to be someone who is going to hold your hand. And so you've got to find that perseverance within yourself to be able to do it. And perseverance doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Perseverance means you just got to want to do or you just have to do what is necessary to be able to reach that goal. And so for me, it looked like talking to different people, getting information, going to an, you know, another administrator outside of my pre-med advisor. You know, it meant, you know, meeting someone who was studying for the MCAT who told me about osteopathic medicine. It meant being in that physics class and talking to that young lady about what the medical school requirements were. You know, it, it means going to the SNMA conference and meeting a DO and him becoming my mentor, which then led me down another path, meeting my husband and all of these things. You have to persevere. And, you know, I again, I don't want people to think that that means you just have to be so self-motivated that you just have to do it alone. No, it means you, you got to be really smart and strategic about getting to your goal. But you have to keep that goal in mind and put all pride aside. Um, when you need to and persevere. I love it, Renee. That's yeah. spectacular advice. So good. And, and again, not just from your mentor, but like channeled through you and your experience. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Renee, again, thank, 
Thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. I really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. And just my last, uh, for for anyone listening, um, Doc's Outside the Box, obviously, uh, you and me, uh, just just a great, fun time. I always listen on, on the way to work in the morning. <laughs> and, and tell us, just for two seconds, my last question for you. You, you have a reality TV show coming out? Can you tell? <laughs> well, it's a, we call it a reality TV, but it's really more a reality video series um, that we're doing through Docs Outside the Box. Um, and so we're kind of recording or documenting what it's like for a doctor to look for a job, right? So I, I always look for what is missing. Oftentimes we write about what doctors do. And so that was why I wrote my children's book about, okay, well, how did you become a doctor? Um, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to do another thing about what doctors do, right? I go into, you know, the L and D and deliver babies, but how do you look for a job as a doctor? What is that process? What does that look like? And so that's kind of the first episode, um, that we did and yeah, you know, it, it'll be on social media. Um, we, we don't have a network that's going to pick it up just yet. Hopefully, that will change, but it's called Doctors for Hire. And um, yeah, so look for it on social media coming out in the in the coming weeks. We're going to drip it out in about like five to seven minute segments. So cool. Yeah. Again, thanks again, Renee. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ian. All right, Renee. Thank, thank you. Again, I know you're uh, probably tired and busy and, and all this kind of stuff like I am. But again, I really think the students are going to going to value you. And if you I don't know if you want me to, when you talk, you know, I'll, I'll cut this obviously later. But um, like when you're talking about you and me being separated, like for that time, do you want me to cut that? Are you OK if I no, leave? I'm good. Or, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, I always feel like I hope I'm not going down a rabbit hole and making no, no, you don't feel uncomfortable. No. I, I don't think that that's anything that's like, oh my gosh, it's so personal. Yeah. Like, no, know, I, think I think it's, you know, you need real. that candor. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Yep. All right, Renee. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ian. Keep scatting, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk to you later. Have a, Have a good night. night. All right. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to do or do not.